do it this way. And then this is the one that's three pages. You want to do... Which one? Which is the Tershatha, and Ezra the priest, the scribe, and the Levites that taught the people, said unto all the people, This day is holy unto the Lord your God. Mourn not, nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Man, they were into what they were listening to, were they not? Then he said unto them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet, and send portions unto them for whom... Nothing is prepared for this day is holy unto the Lord, our Lord. Neither be ye sorry for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites stilled all the people saying, hold your peace for the day is holy. Neither be ye grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions and to make great Joy, because they had understood the words that were declared unto them. And on the second day were gathered together the chief of the fathers of all the people, the priests and the Levites and Ezra the scribe, even to understand the words of the law. Let's bow our heads and pray as our brother comes up to bring us the word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for such a portion in the scriptures that remind us the reverence of what should be given to the word of the Lord. The people stood, the people shouted, they raised their hands, they said amen and amen. Oh God, give us the same sense of the power of the word. And we ask, Lord, that you would give our brother a special unction this morning as he brings forth the word relative to our Lord Jesus Christ so that he can be exalted in our midst and that, Lord, we can have a spirit of understanding what's being spoken and that, Lord, our hearts may rise with praises and that we can be saying either audibly or silently, amen, amen, Oh, Lord, we pray that you would draw near to this holy place that you have sanctified because of your presence with us, because the word of God is opened, and because, Lord, we are your people, covenant people who gather together in your name. Hear our cry, Lord. Bless our brother as he brings forth the word, and may you be glorified this morning, this day, in Jesus' precious and worthy name. Amen. Amen. Would you please turn with me to the book of Mark, chapter 11? I want to give you this opening encouragement to study your Bible seriously. I've had the privilege of working with Seth to teach through the Gospel of Mark to the youth group. I've been greatly blessed by it, and I've gained a much deeper understanding of the Gospel of Mark and the words that God inspired him to write. We have taken it story by story and section by section, breaking it down and chewing through the pieces of the stories. And there are things that I would never have realized in easy reading of whole chapters at a time. So I encourage you all to look at how you read your Bible and to make sure that there are times where you read for depth instead of quantity. A real practical way you can do this is by setting aside a specific period of time that you're going to read so that even when you've finished reading the section that you're reading, 
you have time dedicated to meditating on the word, to thinking over what you've read, rereading it, praying through it. You will be blessed by these things. It's my privilege and honor to preach to you today about the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. This marks the start of a series of sermons that are going to be preached by different brothers here in the church. They will cover the events leading up to the crucifixion of Christ and his resurrection, which we celebrate on Resurrection Sunday or Easter, where we declare the triumph of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, over death and sin as he's raised from the dead. So I preach, so as I preach, and as these brothers in the coming weeks will preach, don't forget to look ahead at where this is all leading. This triumphal entry is only significant because of what Jesus will do when he gets into Jerusalem, which is accomplish salvation for the world. So read with me in Mark as we look at the first steps of his journey into Jerusalem. Starting in verse 1. Now they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany. At the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought their, the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it, and many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest! And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Please pray with me. O God of creation, I pray that we would see Christ for who he really is. That we would worship with gladness and thanksgiving the king of the universe that we would be reminded of our citizenship in the kingdom of God, and that we would feel what is profoundly lacking in this account of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, so that we may be ready to be deeply satisfied when we remember what he ultimately does. Lord, be with me in my words and in my need and with all of our hearts. As we're all aware All stories require some degree of background knowledge to understand. Knowledge that without which the significance and the meaning of the story is lost on us. 
I could tell you the famous story of the tortoise and the hare, but if you didn't know that tortoises are slow and that hares are fast, it wouldn't matter to you that the tortoise is the one who wins the race. Well, those of you who have spent enough time around children will be familiar with the experience of when a kid comes up to you to tell you about something that has happened in their game or on the TV, and you have no idea what they're talking about. They're excited. They're telling you about how Bulbasaur almost died because he's a grass-type fighting a rock-type. And they're all excited about it, but still, you have no context to understand what they're talking about. Or when you come home to find the people you live with watching a movie, and they're partway through it, and you haven't seen it before, and everyone gets all excited because some guy with a star on his chest catches a hammer, some weird flying hammer, and you have no idea why. In all these things, we see how much we need the right knowledge to be able to understand the significance of what's going on inside a story. And it's important that we consider the need for background knowledge as we approach this story, the story of Jesus entering Jerusalem. He did not just come out of nowhere, preach a religion that no one had ever heard of before, die for our sins, and ascend into heaven. His story is the climax of the plan of creation that God had laid out from before time began. God has so created and guided the world and has recorded these events in the Bible that they all point towards Christ as the center. And so if we want to understand Jesus' story better, we need to understand the events that came before more fully. I'll spare you me preaching through the whole Bible before this so you can understand. But I will touch on a few different things as we're going through to help fill in our background knowledge so that we can really understand what's going on in this passage. And once we're finally up to speed, we finally have all the background knowledge we need, we're going to go back through the story so that we can follow properly the significance of everything that's occurring. So we'll start with the background knowledge. We read in verse 1 that they drew near to Jerusalem. They is Jesus and the disciples. Jerusalem is the capital of Israel, the nation that is made up of the people of God. It is set apart from other nations, holy to the Lord. As Moses writes in Deuteronomy 7, 6, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all of the peoples who are on the face of the earth. This is a special and significant city. It is a holy city, and in its midst is the temple, a place dedicated to the worship of the Lord in the center of the true religion at that time. God make, made his glory to dwell in the midst of the people in the temple that was in Jerusalem. Despite this vaunted position as a holy city set apart unto God, all is not well in the city of Jerusalem at this time. It is currently under Roman occupation, and many of the Jewish population disliked Roman rule, 
Many longed for the Romans to be overthrown. And many thought that this is what the promised Messiah would do, that he would come and overthrow the Romans. So they're approaching Jerusalem. Bethphage, Bethphage and Bethany help us understand where he's approaching from. And then Mark adds this detail that he is on the Mount of Olives. So what is significant about this place, the Mount of Olives? Well, it is a place where God is worshipped. We read in Second Samuel 15, But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went barefoot and with his head covered. And later on in the same section it says, While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped. And so we see that the Mount of Olives is a place where the worship of the Lord is done. It is sacred. Not only this, but we read in other passages prophecies that tell us that the Mount of Olives is where the Messiah will stand, where the Lord will come. We read in Ezekiel 11 a passage where Ezekiel is prophesying about the new covenant. We read in there about the Messiah standing on the mountain. He says in verse 19, And I will give them one heart, and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. As for those whose heart goes after detestable things and their abominations, I will bring their deeds upon their own heads, declares the Lord God. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. In the very passage where the new covenant is proclaimed to the people of Israel, the Messiah, the Lord, is placed standing on the mountain. This is a significant place, and Mark is intentionally drawing out this connection. From this place, Jesus instructs his disciples to get him a colt, which we learn from other gospels is a donkey. Now, I would never think of a donkey as a particularly kingly animal to ride. When I think of kings riding into the city on something, I think of a grand, majestic horse that makes him tower above and shows his vaunted position. And apart from studying the Bible, I would never have thought that Jesus being on a donkey shows or has anything to do with him being the Messiah. But the decision made to ride on a donkey is made to highlight Jesus as both king and Messiah. We see that there are prophecies about the king and Messiah that have him riding into the city on a donkey. We read in Zechariah 9.9 a section about the coming of the king of Zion where it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! 
Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. Not only there, but also in Genesis, Jacob is blessing his sons at the end of his life. And to Judah, he prophesies, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, the the staff of kingly rule, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. We see that riding on a donkey is a kingly and messianic position that Jesus specifically chooses to highlight these traits. It's also an unridden donkey. The verse specifies on which no one has ever ridden. It was common practice in those days that the king's horse would never be rid by anyone else. And at multiple points in the Old Testament, animals that are used for sacrifice are specified to have to be unused, unworked. And so we see that in it being unridden, it is particularly fit as a kingly steed and as a steed for sacred work. Beyond that, Jesus is also invoking a kingly right. At this time, it was understood to be a king's right to take a horse if he had need of it. And this is exactly what Jesus does. And it is not just a random detail that we are emphasizing but a distinct choice that would set Jesus apart from everyone else who was entering the city at this time. It was very common, uh, the common expectation during this time was that entering Jerusalem, if you could, you would go on your feet because the streets were crowded and the way was packed and unless you needed it, you weren't supposed to ride a mount into the city. So Jesus stands above and apart other people by making this decision. And he also displays his sovereignty and foreknowledge in this. Jesus is showing his divinity in this act, which adds to the weight of what's happening here in this story. Up till this point, Mark has been very discreet in how Jesus preaches his gospel. And many times he tells parables or operates in ways that avoid the attention of the crowds. So Mark changes his approach in emphasizing how clear Jesus is being and upfront he is with his divinity in foretelling exactly what will happen when they come into the city to get the, when they go to get the donkey. And we should ask ourselves, Why is a donkey the prophesied animal that the Messiah and King will ride on? Why not a majestic horse or, if you're a Lord of the Ring fans, a giant elk? Um, It's because of the humility. 
that even in this triumphal entry, God wants the king to have a sign of humility. The people looking on to know that he is close. It's not that Jesus isn't perfect or grand or glorious, but that he is near to us, that he is God with us. So the donkey shows the kingly and messianic nature of Jesus as he's entering the city. And the crowds clearly understand this to some degree. They understand to some degree the significance of what's happening. As they take off their coats and they cast down branches, laying out what would be a substitute of a a royal carpet that would usually be present as the king enters the city. This is a kingly welcome as they roll out the red carpet. And the crowd shouts, both those before and after, they shout, Hosanna, a word which means save, I pray. This is from Psalm 118 and is a cry of praise. And it is a shout which calls to the Savior as he's entering. Psalm 118 is a very important psalm to understanding this passage. It is a psalm sung to a triumphant king as he returns from battle and enters into the city. It captures both the kingly nature, it captures the kingly nature of Jesus' entry into the city and it foreshadows the coming battle he is going to fight. Even if those shouting aren't aware of what's going to happen, there is so much truth in this psalm that is obviously showing Christ. So I'm going to read through Psalm 118 and unpack pieces of it as we go. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say his steadfast love endures forever. We see already a proper praise of the Lord. We we see in Christ on the cross a profound demonstration of the steadfast love of God that this is prefiguring. Out of my distress I called on the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. You can see how this is a song sung about a king who is victorious in the Lord. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord I cut them off. You think of Christ as the nation is putting him to death. 
If I was pushed hard so that I was failing, I was pushed hard so that I was failing, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. And now we see the tone of salvation increase. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. And the right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. This next part is such an amazing presentation of who Christ is, where you look at it and you see how they wouldn't have understood what was being talked about at the time. But now looking back, we see this great truth that's here. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. This is the psalm that in God's sovereignty, he has the people crying out to him. A psalm that praises the righteous gate by which the righteous enter. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. See how hidden within this cry, the shout of the crowd, is so much truth that adds to the significance of this story. This is a psalm of salvation and of the ultimate salvation that Jesus accomplishes on the cross. In verse 25, we, we get to their cry, save us, we pray, which is similar to that Hosanna. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Jesus is the light of the world. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, and I will extol you. Extol you. O oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. We have thanksgiving being sung to the Lord, praise for his salvation, and memories of the Lord as refuge. We have praise for the gate of righteousness, which Jesus calls himself the way and the gate. We have nations trying to put to death the king, and the rejected cornerstone. Yet he is victorious and put above all. We have praise for the day that the Lord has made, the day of salvation, the day of victory, which we know is Jesus' resurrection. There is so much wrapped up in this call that they proclaim to Christ. And it helps us to remember it as we read it. They say further, blessed is the coming of the kingdom of our father David. This reveals something interesting about the crowd. 
they understand in part, but they still are missing the point of what Jesus is here for. This is a way of them talking about the earthly kingdom that they are expecting Jesus to bring, which is why they use coming of the kingdom of David instead of what we're used to hearing, the kingdom of God. Now, it is true that Jesus is bringing about the Davidic kingdom, but it's not an earthly kingdom, an earthly victory like the crowd is expecting. But it is the kingdom that David longed to see, that David prophesied about the kingdom of God. So that is most of the background knowledge that lies behind Jesus' triumphal entry. With our ducks in a row, we are now prepared to reread the story and follow what is going on and what its significance is. It is important to understand that Mark is a storyteller. He specifically sets up his gospel to have a sense of drama and action as we read this. Jesus, a marvelous preacher of God's word, someone who has worked amazing miracles and has gained a following, a following of disciples, a man of whom people have begun to whisper may be the promised Messiah. This man, Jesus, who has not yet set foot in Jerusalem in Mark's gospel, whom Mark has emphasized the hidden nature of his ministry heads to Jerusalem, the city of God, the city of the great king, and the capital of the nation. This place ruled and oppressed by a foreign people who have no love for the Lord. Jesus the Messiah comes down the Mount of Olives, the sacred place that God has worshipped, where God is worshipped, and where the Lord and Messiah is prophesied to come. Jesus stands on that mount coming into Jerusalem. And the mount is the very place where the Lord is said to stand in the very passage that promises a new covenant. He, in a surprisingly open display of sovereignty and foreknowledge, instructs the disciples to get a donkey for them to for him to ride and tells them exactly how the encounter will go he will ride into the city set apart from the other travelers who walk in yet on an animal that signifies his humility this animal this unridden animal taken by kingly right in name of the lord is the symbol of how the promised king will ride the king of judah the people clearly recognize the significance of this entry. They understand at least in part Jesus as King and Messiah. They give him a kingly welcome, laying down their coats and branches for Jesus. And they shout to him praises from a psalm that proclaims and rejoices in the victorious entry of the king into the city from a psalm that tells of salvation, a psalm that foreshadows Jesus fighting a battle for salvation, and a psalm that shows the king rejected and assaulted by nations, yet exalted above them all. 
The light of God shines on the people and the gate of righteousness is praised, the way by which the righteous enter. This is the psalm that the people quote as Jesus enters. Hosanna, save I pray. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They praise the coming of the kingdom of David. They understand that there is something significant going on, but they fail to realize the fullness of what Jesus is bringing. So Jesus rides in as king and Messiah. The crowd cheers and praises him as such. He goes to the temple, the center of it all, the place where God's glory is said to dwell among the people, the holy hill. And what happens? Does Jesus proclaim a new age of Jewish triumph? Does he start a rebellion that will see the Romans cast out? Is this the day where the of salvation where the oppressed will be freed? And Mark answers after this dramatic build-up in verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. What happened? What's going on? All of this build-up and then this? I mean, he comes, there's all this this fanfare, all this excitement and shouting, there are crowds gathered. He goes to the center of it all, looks around and leaves. It's an anticlimax. It's when something everyone expected, something, when everyone expected something grand, and then there was nothing. It's like when you're watching a horror movie, and a girl is walking down a long hallway in the middle of night. At the end of the hallway, a door is cracked, and yellow light flickers through. The music builds and you hear movement and strange noises coming from inside. She grabs the door, she opens it, and it's her toddler brother playing in the bathroom. It leaves the audience confused and wondering where the monster is going to come from. And that's the point that Mark is making here. This isn't where salvation happens. Not in this temple and this isn't where the victory is won. Jesus is the King. He is the Messiah. But what the crowd expects and what the crowd wants from Him isn't what He's come here to do. We are left wondering and looking for what Jesus is going to do in the city. Let's keep this in mind as we go through these upcoming sermons that we haven't haven't seen what the salvation and victory that all this seemed to be building up to was going to be. We should feel a sense of longing as we move on from this passage. What's going to happen? When is the salvation going to come? What is Jesus going to do in the city? The king is in the city. The savior is here in Jerusalem. 
And it's like that powerful line from the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan is on the move. We should be left in eager anticipation of what is going to come and of how God will save and declare his victory on that resurrection Sunday. I have a few points of application to pull out from this. There's a lot that can be said about it, but I narrowed it down to some of the most prominent things. First of all, know that God's plans are more grand than any of us can imagine. Do not be disappointed when God does things differently than you were expecting or planning. They thought of a earthly salvation, of overthrowing the oppressive rule of the Romans. But what God has in store for them is so much greater than what they imagined. Don't be disappointed when things go differently than what you expect. And look in anticipation when they do go differently of what God is doing. If God's plan is different than yours, it is because he is working something better than you imagined. Now, don't be confused. That doesn't mean everything's going to be peachy and happy all the time. This plan we're talking about includes Jesus suffering and dying on the cross. It may be greater than we imagined, but also the cost is greater than we imagine. But still, that very suffering leads to our salvation. We also need to read to understand what is going on, to take the time and attention to feel the weight and gravity of the story that is being told, and to not forget the reality of these things. These things actually occurred. These are the true events of a true life. And when we read it with this mindset, it should be every bit as striking as when we see the news of wars on TV. And frankly, when we really realize what's going on in this book, it's unbelievable. We need to understand and feel the weight of the reality of these things. We need to rejoice because what God had made hidden has now been made clear to us. Look at these prophecies from Jacob foretelling the uh, kingly person, the king who will come from the line of Judah, or from Ezekiel or Zechariah. All these prophecies that foretell Jesus, some hundreds and others over a thousand years old when they come to be fulfilled. Jesus has come, the king has come, and he has made himself known. We need to rejoice and be thankful that the Spirit reveals Jesus as he is to us, this king and Messiah. We need to remember to not be proud. Even Jesus, the Lord of the universe, the sovereign of all creation, 
the one who will ultimately be seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, how does he ride into the city? On a lowly donkey, on a humble animal. If Jesus can bear a mark of humility as he enters the city, then none of us have any reason to demand that we are exalted or to be prideful. And we need to run to Jesus. He is the king, but he is close. Trust in this king. Trust in the savior. He is the only refuge and his steadfast love endures forever. He is the gate He is the refuge, as it is said in Psalm 118. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. What are we doing trusting in anything else? Our strength will not save us. Not money or wisdom, not our looks, not our lies. Our only refuge is this king. And for those of you who do not know the Lord, the king and savior has come. He has brought the day of salvation so that those who trust in him will go free. Repent and believe. There is no other refuge and the king will have his due. You are, you will either bow now or you will bow later. This is not a fanciful story. This is the real, perfect, holy savior come to die for sinners. Do not be attached to what you think salvation is. It is not drugs or popularity or relationships. It is not comfort or peace. It is knowing this man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Run to Jesus. The King is close. Please pray with me in closing. May the King and Savior enter our hearts. May he conform us to his image. And may we rejoice in his victory the knowledge of him, and the life everlasting. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.